Open your Bibles, if you would. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. This, of course, is Pentecost Sunday. We've been talking about that. We started last week. Um, the day recorded in Acts chapter 2. That's going to be our focus. You know, I said, I've said several times, in the Western church, we don't pay a lot of attention, unless you're in a liturgical church, to Pentecost Sunday. Um, and I, I got new proof of that just the last, I think, 48 hours, um, a little longer than that. I was putting together notes for this morning, and I wanted to begin by saying, and then it occurred to me I didn't know what to say. You know, if it was Christmas, you'd say Merry Christmas, right? Or if it was, um, if it was Easter, you'd say, you know, Happy Easter, Kalabaska, you know, whatever. Um, Christ is risen, right? We've got words for all those, right? But it's, what do you say, Happy Pentecost? We don't have, there's nothing, right? And if you really want to be, find something interesting, try Googling it. Like, what, you know, finding greeting cards for the day of Pentecost. No, we, we just don't do it in, in our Western society, and that, that's unfortunately reflected in our faith. So we do need to address that. Pentecost, something we really need to uh, focus on. Um, and so last week we started, we looked at Acts chapter 2, verse 1, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all there in one place, and we, we began by observing there's, there's three real parts in that, in that first verse. There's the day of Pentecost, which we talked about last week. That's that celebration, that one of the three major Old Testament celebrations where all the Jews would go to Jerusalem. All three of those celebrations looked to the, the Exodus experience, leaving the Promised Land, going to the wilderness, or rather leaving Egypt, going to the wilderness and coming to the Promised Land. Uh, that While Passover looks at the beginning of that experience, leaving Egypt, Pentecost looks at the end, coming in, the promised land and finding a harvest and then continuing in that. Uh, we learned that the day of Pentecost was a, was a harvest celebration, a harvest feast. It was all about gratitude, gratitude, bringing in the first fruits of the crop, that first uh, grain harvest. They brought that in as an expression of gratitude. Uh, it was an expression of dependence, recognizing their dependence on God to continue to provide harvest, faith, the expectation that God would continue to be there, about not taking things for granted. I think if I had to sum up that Old Testament feast in, in one way, I'd say it's about not taking things for granted and acting in a way that demonstrates our gratitude, our confidence uh, for God. And that even mentioned how that's, in, that's kind of a paradigm for our giving in the New Testament. Why do we give? We give as an expression of gratitude. We support the work of the Lord as an expression of gratitude for what he's done for us, recognizing our dependence on him. We are dependent for everything and the expectation that he will continue to meet our needs. So that was last week. We laid out that groundwork, and I really appreciated um, those that were here and, and tracked that because with background like that, you can kind of find yourself going, okay, well, how did that apply to me? And I think, we've, I think we touched on that, how that does apply to us as we understand what's being said in that, in that Old Testament uh, celebration. Well, um, today we're going to shift to the second part of that verse. That expression was fully 
come, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. You know, Luke could have said just as easily on the day of Pentecost. That would have recorded the events just as accurately. He could have said on the day of Pentecost, but he didn't. He used this rather unusual expression uh, when the day of Pentecost was fully come. So we're going to talk about that this morning. And then just looking ahead, next week we'll look at that expression in one accord. And that's a pretty amazing statement. Uh, but to get started this morning on this idea that the day of Pentecost was fully come, we'll talk about some other translations of that, uh, I want to start with these two verses of Scripture. And it might not make sense at first, but I think it will as we get into it. So uh, Luke chapter 8, I asked you to turn there, verse 23. Um, and it, the setting is when Jesus was and the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee and the storm came up. But as they were sailing along, he, that is Jesus, fell asleep. And a fierce gale of wind descended on the lake, and they began to be swamped and be in danger. Then if you would turn over a, a page or two to Luke 9. Luke 9. My Bible, it's two pages. Yours would be different. Um, Luke 9, verse 51. When the days were approaching for his ascension, again speaking of Jesus, when the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Father, we thank you for your word and ask that as we look to it this morning, we want to hear from you, Lord. That's our heart's cry. We want to hear from you. And you've given us your word to speak to us through. So we ask for your, um, your guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. So writing the book of Acts, Luke describing the events of that day, the day of Pentecost. He uses this phrase, the day of Pentecost, being fully come. Exactly what does that mean? Well, whether your Bible says was fully come or was made complete or had arrived, a lot of different translations, uh, it all comes from one, one word. I'm going to do my best not to Greek bomb you today. Uh, but this one word, uh, simplirao, simplirao is the word that he used. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a combination of two smaller words, nothing unusual about that. Um, and this particular combination of two words into one, this particular one, um, even though the two smaller words are fairly common, this particular combination, putting them together, is extremely rare. Only occurs three times in the entire New Testament, and only by Luke. Luke's the only author to use this. And so to try to understand what Luke is saying when he uses it in Acts chapter 2, we're going to look at it in the rest of the New Testament, those other two passages, uh, especially that one about the boat being swamped. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first saw that, I thought, what does that have to do with the day of Pentecost? Well, that's what we're going to try to find out. So what I want to do this morning, if we can, is look at, at, at the word itself, including the two parts that go into it, and then look at these three passages where it's used, and then finally focus in on the Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost passage, and it finally ask what it means to us. What does this speak to us? So, first of all, the word itself, simplirao. Uh, again, made of two words, uh, sim, which means with or together. Uh, it comes right into English as sympathy. When you have sympathy for someone, that means you are suffering or experiencing what they suffer with them. You're suffering with them. That's what sympathy means, right? Um, it's used a lot. Uh, it can also be used to intensify. 
or to express the idea of completion like all things being brought together. Same kind of idea as the word with, bringing things together. It can mean to intensify or to complete by bringing things together. Um, that's the first part. That's the first little word. And then the second word, plirao, uh, which is really, really common, that just means to fill, like you'd fill a water glass. Very common, very simple word. And, and that's kind of a clue for us where this is going, because if you, were, if you were here last week or you listened on the podcast, you know that when we talked about uh, a promise, that God made a lot of promises to Israel in the process of bringing them into the promised land, right? And when a promise is made, we said last week, we observed that a promise is what? It's like an empty glass. If I make you a promise, I'm handing you an empty glass. And you can carry that empty glass as, as a testimony that I haven't done what I'd said I was going to do until I fill it. And when I make good on my word, the glass is now full. And I haven't really fulfilled, interesting we use that word, I haven't fulfilled my promise until the glass is full. So a promise, as I said, is like an empty glass, an empty vessel. So that's a connection there right off the bat with what, what's going on here on the day of Pentecost, right? You bring these pieces together, simply it means to fill completely, or in the case of a promise, to fulfill completely, all right? So let's see how that works in these three passages of Scripture. First, uh, in the Luke 8 passage, Jesus and the disciples in the boat. Of course, again, I think we, most of us know uh, the account. Uh, the disciples are with Jesus, and they're crossing the Sea of Galilee. It's prone to really bad storms, and the storm comes up, and Jesus falls asleep, and the wind and the waves, and the boat begins to fill um, some some observations just to make about that whole thing. Uh, there's a process of the water gradually coming in and then more. Anybody here ever had the experience of having a boat sink out from underneath you? It's different than capsizing a canoe or a kayak. That seems to be more common up here. But I think of having a boat sink out from underneath you. There's, there's a whole experience about that um, because you're standing on something and then it, it's not there anymore. Like, where'd the boat go? It's, it's gone. And it's, it's kind of sudden-like. There's that cumulative thing of the water coming in, and you know that it could sink, and you're hoping that it doesn't, and then you realize that you're swimming, and it did. See? So that's that whole, that whole idea of water coming in, boat filling up, boom, boat's, boat's gone. Okay. That's what it is to be filled. When the boat reaches the point that it's filled... It sinks, and that was the disciples' concern, right? So that, that's that first passage of Scripture. Um, now let's look at the second, the second passage of Scripture where Jesus is... Um, and I want to stop before going any farther about that, that, that picture. Remember, Luke's the only guy to use this word, and he uses it three times, and he's very deliberate to put it in that account in the Gospel. I would suggest, and we can take or leave this, I would suggest that Luke did that, he used that word, which he's only going to use twice more, to put that image in his readers' minds. You know, most scholars put Luke and Acts together into actually one volume, like two two books in, in or two volumes in one book. He wanted that image of the boat being filled to the point that it was ready to sink. He wanted us to have that word in mind when we saw that word occur again. 
I would suggest that. So he uses it a second time, one chapter later, um, Luke chapter 9, and this is the place where it talks about Jesus coming to the place of his ministry where he turns to Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9, verse 51, when the days were approaching for his ascension, that is, of course, his death, crucifixion, crucifixion, death, resurrection, and then 40 days later, ascension to heaven, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. So Jesus has been traveling about, he's been preaching, he's been healing, some really powerful stuff's been going on, he's been casting out demons, he's been feeding multitudes, there's been the experience of the transfiguration. Uh, his teaching has reached a really intense level. This is right after he says, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for the gospel's sake, the same shall find it. It doesn't get any more cut and dried than that. He, he, would re, he was really laying the truth out pretty intensely. And so with all of that going on, Jesus suddenly makes this decisive turn towards Jerusalem. In other words, everything he had to do except go to Jerusalem and die had been done. I don't, I don't know if you think about Jesus in his, in his earthly ministry going through life with like a checklist. There were certain things he had to do. There were prophetic statements he had to do. There were prophetic promises he had to make good on. And as he checked off each one, that glass got fuller and fuller. And he came to a place in Luke chapter 9 that he went, mm, yeah, it's full. Now I go to Jerusalem. Everything else had been done. Everything that he had to do had been done except head to Jerusalem and die. So Luke uses the word there to describe that point in his ministry where everything has been done that he needed to do. Now he goes to Jerusalem and he dies. And, and if, if, again, if that checklist visual is kind of hard for you, remember, what was the last thing Jesus said? It is finished, done it, checked it all off the list. Everything he needed to do, okay? Now let's go to the third use of the word. That's this Acts chapter 2, verse 1, where the day of Pentecost was fully come. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this or not, but when Luke makes that statement, and it's so ironic that a Gentile wrote this. I find the irony of this amazing. A Gentile writes this when Luke says the day of Pentecost was fully come. When he used that expression, rather than simply say on the day of Pentecost, when he said when the day of Pentecost was fully come, he's making an assertion about the day of Pentecost. He is saying something about this big Jewish festival. He is saying it's not just a harvest celebration where all the Jews go to Jerusalem and they bring in the first fruit of the harvest and they have a good old time. He is saying that festival is just like Passover was, a prophetic statement about what God was going to do. When Jesus went to the cross, buried, resurrected, it gave Passover a whole new meaning, right? It, it caused people to see, whoa, Passover was not just talking about what happened then. When the, the blood of the lamb was placed on the doorpost and the angel of death passed over the children of Israel. No, it was saying that Jesus would do something that would with his blood, caused the angel of death to pass over us. Jesus took what was past and made it present and future in his actions. Luke is now saying that same idea is true about the day of Pentecost. It's not only a looking back, it's a promise which is just now being filled. Right? Day of Pentecost, not just remembrance, but a promise. Empty glass. Something to be filled, right? 
The day of Pentecost was a prophetic promise, just as much as Isaiah or the Psalms speaking about Jesus' death and resurrection was a promise. So what's the promise? What is the promise? Well, look at Acts chapter 2, and I do hope you've read it in the last uh, week or so in preparation for this, because we're not going to be able to go through the whole thing in detail, but we do know exactly what the promise was that the day of Pentecost referred to. Because after the Holy Spirit came, and I think most of us know what happened, the disciples were waiting in an upper room, 120 of them. And I don't think we necessarily do the best job of really getting the visual on that or the emotional experience of it. I mean, we read about um, they're all sitting there. And there's a big crowd outside. Because again, major festival, Jerusalem's full of people. And then we read that there was a mighty wind and there were flames of fire, and they distributed on each one of them, and they began to speak in other tongues. We read that, and okay, fine. Put yourself in that room, okay? You've seen some pretty incredible stuff, Jesus do. You've heard him preach some pretty incredible things, right? And you've, you've experienced the emotional trauma of his crucifixion and death. You watched them bury him. You went back, and there was an empty tomb, and then Jesus is there, and you spent 40 days with him, and then he leaves, and he says, wait in Jerusalem, for what I told you about. And 10 days have passed, and you're sitting in this room, and notice Jesus didn't say, wait 10 days. He said, wait. So you don't know when, you know. Again, you don't know when the boat's going to be full. You just know the water's coming in. And on the day of Pentecost, you're expecting the usual day of Pentecost, right? All of a sudden, you hear a wind. Remember, there's no glass in their windows, right? You hear a wind come in the room that is absolutely deafening. Like what we had last winter? No, way past that. You can't hear yourself think. This enormous wind. And then the air above you, the atmosphere itself, catches on fire. Now, how are you reacting in that moment? And then, as you perceive that fire, it actually separates. Now, if you're where I'm from, your mind is a 55 Chevrolet with flames on the side of it, you know. But however you visualize that, maybe you have the campfire model. I've never gotten away from being you know, from L.A., flames inside a car. But the fire separates into individual expressions like into human tongues, and then it goes and it rests on each person individually. I don't know about you, I'm terrified. I have no idea what this is. And if I have one thing going for me, it's the fact that Jesus told me it was going to be okay. And then they begin to speak in languages they do not know. But people outside do know them. And the people outside begin to exclaim, they are hearing us praise God in languages we've never heard before. But some say, ah, they're just all liquored up, you know, partying a little bit too soon. And Peter stands up, the same guy that wouldn't even admit he knew Jesus just 40 days, 50 days before. And now he says, in verse 22. Men of Israel. I got ahead of myself. Oh, verse 14. I'm sorry. Verse 14. Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is that which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. So Peter holds up Joel's prophecy as the promise that's connected to the day of Pentecost, which is now being fulfilled. And here's the promise spoken by the prophet Joel centuries before. He said, 
It shall come in the last days that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall see visions, your young men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I will grant wonders in the sky above and, and on the earth beneath, signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire, vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's a lot of stuff in that promise. Now, we hear that, where does our mind go? Our mind goes to all the stuff in the middle, you know. We, well, what's the prophecy and what's the signs and what's this blood and fire and vapor of smoke and that's all stuff that certainly needs to be talked about and certainly needs to be thought about and certainly needs to be considered, but what's really radical is the first thing he says and the last thing he says. The first thing is, and it shall come about, I will pour forth of my spirit on all flesh. Now that word pour forth, you know where else it's used? Jesus uses that in the parable of the wine and the wineskins. And he says if you put new wine in an old wineskin, what happens? It bursts and the wine gushes forth. So if we want to talk about water glasses, we're going to keep using this illustration. It's like you're sitting in the cafe and your glass is getting empty, right? And you motion the server over and the server comes over and they are very careful to pick the glass up by the bottom. If they don't, I want to hear about it. But you hold it up and the server goes, no, 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 no. I want everybody at the table to put your, hold your glasses up in the center. And you okay. I don't know what's going on, but you, you know, comply. And everybody at the table picks the glasses up like this. And instead of the pitcher, the server has a bucket. And they just go, boosh! And yeah, the glass is full, but the table's soaked, and so are you. That's what he's talking about. Now, you contrast that with everything these people knew. When the Holy Spirit showed up in the Old Testament, it was usually one person, one event, one time, one moment, and kind of contained, more or less contained, right? Now, there was the, the whole column of smoke and pillar of fire, that, I may have those backwards, but that wasn't like one, it was like, it was, not, it was kind of impersonal. When the Holy Spirit is manifested in the Old Testament in a person, it's kind of contained. This is no longer contained. This is all over the table, all over the room. And even more radical, even more radical, this is everybody, all flesh. Wait a minute, you mean, you don't mean Gentiles too, think dog. And I don't mean puppy dog. I mean mangy, nasty street dog. That was their worldview of a Gentile. You mean you're going to do that to Gentiles just exactly the same as to Jews? That's what that promise being fulfilled meant. That is exactly what it meant when the Spirit was poured out. All flesh that everyone, again, how it begins and how it ends, that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. God made a huge promise through Joel. And in fulfilling it, there are two radical changes in the way God works with humanity, and that is what the day of Pentecost is all about. The radical change in the way God deals with humanity. He would pour out of his spirit, it would be on all humanity. And what's really important, we can miss this so easily, is this is a promise. This may rock some of your theology. Some of you may struggle with this theologically. 
This is a promise that was not fulfilled at Calvary. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was talking about what he had to do, and he finished it. This is after that. This is a promise that wasn't fulfilled at Calvary. Now, don't get me wrong. It's completely dependent on Calvary. It is completely dependent on his death, on his burial, on his resurrection. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 2, you know that Peter says, what you're seeing here is proof of the resurrection. Because it couldn't have happened without the resurrection. So the very fact you're seeing all this wild and crazy stuff going on, it's just one more piece of evidence that Jesus is who he said he was. And that he did what he said he would do. And that indeed, he has not only risen from the dead, but he's in the presence of the Father. Because he had to go to the Father to ask the Father to pour this out before it happened. So there's a connection, but this is separate. It's a promise that was fulfilled after Calvary, that's a critical distinction to make. Totally dependent on Calvary, right? So what does, this, what does this mean to us, right? This experience, what happened, dependent on, on the events of Passover, a product of the crucifixion and the resurrection, what does it mean to us? Well, the Bible has some really incredible, almost unbelievable truths in it. I mean, the whole idea of God becoming flesh, that's kind of hard to believe, incarnation. God dying for his creation, fallen humanity, that's hard to believe. Um, God is a man raising from the dead, the resurrection, that's hard to believe. But maybe the hardest one of all is God coming to dwell in humanity. And that's what the day of Pentecost is. He not only fulfilled the promise, he filled the vessels. He filled his church individually and corporately. God coming to dwell in humanity. Let me illustrate the importance of that. And see, I think most of us probably have that theologically established in our minds. We know that God dwells in us by his spirit. We got that. But do we really understand the significance of it? It is so easy to slip out of that. One of them, one of the really great songs, and it's a great song that we teach um, our, our little kids in Sunday school. It's one of, one, of, one of my wife's favorites. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. You all know it. You can sing it if you want to with me. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. But the Father up above is looking down in love. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Really good song for kids. But as adults, we need to go to the next level of understanding. See, there's one tiny problem with that song. I'm taking my life in my hands here because my wife really likes that song. There's one little problem with that. For the Father up above, God's association with us is much closer than that. In fact, let's be honest. When we're tempted to do something that we should not do, and we start to think about the fact that God's not going to like this. Do we or do we not find a certain level of comfort in thinking of him as distant? Do we or do we not find a certain amount of license in thinking of him as distant? Maybe that's just me. Confession time, right? The spirit dwells inside of us. 
as Christians, Paul makes it clear. He, he says in Romans, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. It's the definition of a Christian, to have the spirit of God dwelling in us. So when we indulge the flesh and we sin, who are we bringing into it? Father's doing much more than watching it from above. If I go somewhere, I'm not supposed to go. I'm taking the Holy Spirit with me. I'm sure he doesn't appreciate that. Lord, have mercy. When I do something I shouldn't do, oh, it's more than God not liking him. Am I making him an active participant in it? Am I accusing him of sin? No. But I'm bringing him into something he wants nothing to do with. Lord, have mercy. Or I don't do. Sins of omission, same thing. There's something I should be doing and I'm not doing it. Is he simply looking on from the outside? No. No, this is personal. This is personal. That's the negative side of it. The positive side of it is when Jesus said, he would never leave us. He would never forsake us. I am with you always. I'm going to pick on Brad. Just because Brad's really easy to pick on. Because he's so nice. He won't hit me. So I know that, that Brad has great conversations when he's driving back and forth from work. He just told me this morning. And so um, Brad's driving along in his truck. He's got Alex there in the cab with him. And they're having a really insightful conversation. I don't want to sit down yet. We're having a really good conversation. And um, Brad's really starting to censor some things he needs to share with Now, this is totally fictitious. I do not know what they talk about. I'm making this up. Um, the other reason I picked Brad is everybody on both sides can see him. I didn't know you were going to sit there. You looked up. Um, so they're having this really good conversation. And all of a sudden, Brad perceives, Brad perceives that his van, you drive usually? He drives, okay. It was going to be easier if you were the passenger, but we can make it work. Um, he re suddenly realized there's another seat in his van where the door used to be. <laughs> and he perceives that while he's having this real heart-to-heart -heart with, with his co-worker, that, that Jesus is sitting next to him. He's sitting next to him. Okay. So you, you've been talking to your co-worker there. You suddenly perceive that Jesus is sitting next to you. What do you do? What's your reaction? Think of everything I just said. Okay. What do you do going forward? What, what do I do? Right now, okay, you, you were in the middle of a conversation, all right? All right? You were having a conversation with the guy and the man next to you. You suddenly realized Jesus is sitting next to you. What do you do? I think I'd invite him into the conversation. You would invite him into the conversation. You guys get my point? He's already in the conversation. Yeah. See, that's the point. He's already in the conversation. What I was really hoping you're saying, you let me down. What I was really hoping you're saying, which is what I would say, if it was me, I'm like, mm. you take it from here, <laughs> right? Right? That'd be my reaction. But we can work with what you get. You say you would invite him into the conversation. I'm going to get really adventuresome here, and I'm going to speculate what Jesus might actually say. I already am in the conversation, and I'm not through. Go on. See the point? I'm waiting. I got a lot to say. Go ahead. I have a lot to say. I'm waiting on you to say it. See the point? 
The only difference, thank you for being cooperative, I appreciate that. You didn't have any choice. Um, the only difference, the only difference between perceiving Jesus sitting there, observing Jesus sitting on this side, and you're talking to your coworker, and him not, and not perceiving him sitting there is the perception. The only difference is the perception. And we're all prone to it, right? Jesus walks in here right now and stands right there. What am I going to do? Right? What is his response? Oh, I'm already doing it. Keep it up. Now, I'm not suggesting any of us are, you know, without flaw. That when I stand here preaching, like it's the flawless word. No, I hope we're aware of that. But his dwelling in us is as personal, as intimate, and as absolute as it could be. You cannot be dwelt, indwelt by part of the Holy Spirit. That doesn't work. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us is as complete, as intimate, as personal as it could be. The only variable is our receptivity to it. And that's what the day of Pentecost brings to our mind. The day of Pentecost brings to our mind what Jesus meant when he said, I will always be with you. It's just as real. It is as real as if Jesus were standing here now with his arm around my shoulder or yours. So this is the challenge I want to lay before you this week. I want you to just try and get it. I'm in the same boat, right? Really trying to get it. If it means reading Acts 2 again and again and again. If it means spending time in prayer over it. Talking to members of your family about it. Talk to members of your family. What does it mean to have Jesus living inside of you? And don't be afraid to talk to your little ones about this either. They may have some incredible insights to share with you, right? Journal about it or write it out. Do something to give your, your brain permission to just like mull this over. And most importantly, absolutely most importantly, this week, ask God to show you what it means. Ask God to show you what it means. Both in terms of what we don't do but should do. Lord, help me understand how the knowledge that you are an intimate part of my life should impact the way I live my life and what I do and don't do. And then, uh, and then uh, in the more positive side, say, Lord, as I interact with people, as I interact with my spouse and my children, as I interact with, with, with my brothers and sisters in Christ, and most importantly, as I interact with the lost, Lord, those I know, Lord, show me how you are in me and working through me. Because I want to step out this week, each day, with the confidence that I am not doing this on my own. That's the challenge I want to leave before you this week. Father, I thank you that as we look to the events of, of the day of Pentecost, and there's a lot of stuff there that we have questions about and a lot of really honest questions we can ask, and we can ask those things, Father, but the most important thing, the most important thing we get from this, Lord, is that that promise you made through the, through the prophet Joel so many centuries ago has been fulfilled 
this vessel that we call our lives has been filled with the presence and power of your spirit. And Father, we want to walk with a perception and a sensitivity to that each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and worship the Lord.